From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Ohio native Susan Orlean is a fall guest of the Thurber House. She is also the recipient of the 2012 Ohioana Book Award for Nonfiction for her book, Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. Her nonfiction books include The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, My Encounters with Extraordinary People, and The Orchid Thief, which was made into the movie Adaptation, starring Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Susan Orlean. A pleasure to be with you. Thanks. About your most recent book, the San Francisco Chronicle said of Rin Tin Tin, quote, Orlean's pursuit of detail is mind-boggling. Tell me about researching this story about Rin Tin Tin. I entered this without really having any idea of where it would take me, which was both the pleasure and at times the the terror as I entered into it. I really began with um, just a curiosity about this character who had been so important to me as a kid, who seemed really one-dimensional in the sense that I just thought, well, this is a, a television show and a character in the show that I had a crush on when I was a child. When I discovered that he was a real dog, a real living dog, and that he had been born um, a good 40 years before I imagined that he existed and and in under circumstances that were so different, I... I just felt that I had to peel the story back to its very core. That meant everything from learning the history of German Shepherds as a breed, which turned out to be really fascinating, um, the history of dogs in war, because Rintinton was born on a battlefield because his mother was a German war dog. And it, it simply kept, um, I would say the story just kept growing as well as the very specific story of Lee Duncan, the young American GI who found the dog and turned him into a star. So to begin with, I, I had to just get my grounding in who he was, where the story began, and then follow all of those directions till up to the present moment. Now, you're going to be at the Thurber House. Tell me about what you'll be sharing with them. Could you give us a preview of the kinds of discussion that you'll have about the the book, I'm assuming, Rin Tin Tin? Yes, well, I'm definitely uh, talking about Rin Tin Tin. And I think that um, one of the great pleasures I have with this book is to try to explain what layers are in the book since on one level you might say wow it's a book about a dog who made a tv show how 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 slight how trivial without understanding how deep this went how much it became a parable about american culture from the early 1900s to the present day so I want to talk about that as well as the the sort of ambition of storytelling and in this instance bringing people to a story that might appear familiar but upon closer examination turns out to be a rather 
marvelous, I think, um, and definitely surprising thing. You also have a Kindle single called Animalish that talks about the life and times of a girl who has always loved animals. So tell me a little bit about how that played out for you. What was your decision to write the Kindle single? It's a new area for you. I have to confess I'm very interested in where we're heading um, in the world of writing and publishing. Right. So the idea of exploring a form that was new, namely these standalone essays that are being published as the equivalent almost of like a brochure length. Um, They're longer than magazine pieces, but uh, not as long as a book. And the fact is that I think a lot of ideas live very comfortably at that length. So that was very attractive to me. The immediacy of publishing something sort of, you know, within 24 hours is, is pretty thrilling. So I, I really was intrigued by the form. This particular essay was a real labor of love. I had just been working on the book about Rin Tin Tin for the better part of a decade. I had written a couple of New Yorker pieces that were about about animals, and I began feeling like it would be a nice opportunity to pull all this together and to explain how animals have figured in my life um, as a, a sort of anecdotal history of me and my various creatures. So it was really fun. And it was also, it seemed to me, the perfect format for that story. Um, while I could have possibly published it in The New Yorker, it felt like it, it existed very well in this other form and it gave me some freedom to kind of play around within it that may not have been quite available to me writing for the magazine. So it was really fun. It's fascinating to me to see all of these new platforms that exist for writing and how many possibilities it opens up. You know, it's interesting as you say that because um, on the one hand, I would think that it would be a great thing to be at The New Yorker and have the kind of editorial staff that I'm assuming uh, also works with authors or or used to. I'm not really sure, um, obviously, how The New Yorker works now, but that was one of the things that they were famous for. Whereas something like the Kindle, as you said, you can get it published, uh, the Kindle single, you can get it published in 24 hours, but that in some ways might up the ante of anxiety because it's sort of, you know, I'm, I'm guessing there aren't many editorial controls on that. That's a, a new sort of frontier. You get done with it and it gets passed off to almost immediate p- publication. Right, which is, as you say, both a, a great aspect of it and a little bit of a dangerous one. Um that you don't have nearly as much editorial input. I mean, The New Yorker is still a very rigorous editing process and a fact-checking process. And you feel like you're not entirely out there on your own. (laughs) And if you um, make a mistake, it's going to get caught well before something is published in The New Yorker. Moreover, once once you're done with your work... It's in the magazine. You don't have to then promote it. The magazine is out there as a 
an institutional entity that people are buying and your story might motivate a few extra people to buy it, but you, you, you don't have to worry about selling it. So these, um, the, the version of the Amazon Kindle single, you know, all of the upside also has some complications. Um, and I'm a great believer in being edited. So I don't think, boy, this is such a relief. I didn't have to be edited. I could just slap anything I wanted down on the page and get it published. I think, you know, we're going to see a glut of work that's not very good because it becomes easier and easier for people to publish. So uh, that doesn't mean we, we're all great at doing it without a second opinion and a, a you know a sharp-eyed editor helping shape things into their best form. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things that I think uh, an, an editorial process like The New Yorker does is uh, allows you to uh, – the subjects are brought to you and um, – and you're allowed to, I, I think, choose, or maybe they're assigned. But you're you have a book called "The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup: My Encounters with Extraordinary People," and that was a collection of profiles. So I'm curious, what makes a potential subject interesting to you? What makes you choose the people that you chose in this collection, for example? In general, I have a probably what is a very unsatisfying answer to that, which is I will hear about someone or meet someone or have a a story happen to flicker past me and it'll just click on a purely intuitive level. My reaction will be, gee, that's interesting. I don't sit there and think, hmm, this would be... I could sell this to people who are interested in X, Y, and Z, or this fills a niche that I think people are interested in. It's entirely my own gut reaction of, wow, that's interesting. Someone says female bullfighter, um, and I just think, whoa, that's amazing. There are women bullfighters? That's that's incredible. And And then I run with it. I've been lucky to have editors and work for a magazine and not just the New Yorker, but some of the other places I've worked that have said, okay, it sounds, it's a bit of an unusual idea, but if you're really passionate about it, go figure it out. So it it is hard for me to predict. That's why I, um, I always encourage people to tell me the ideas that they've thought of that they think I might be interested in, but there's a good chance I won't have that reaction. And I can't really predict it. I I think the best I can say is uh, I usually there are usually two elements going on at once that something surprises me, but at the same time there's something familiar. Some some element of the story that resonates in a familiar way. So it's not purely an exotic, odd thing, but somehow I feel some connection to it, even if it's as as strange as a woman bullfighting or a taxidermy convention, that somehow it clicks. 
but it also makes me go, wow, I had no idea that that existed. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious, uh, sometimes I do a lot of uh, tweeting, and then I start interpreting my life through that lens, you know, making my experiences 140 characters long. And when you talk about your work in profile journalism, it makes me wonder if you have that same kind of experience. Um, How do you separate your journalistic interest in people, say, from a conversation on a plane? Um, How do you turn that off? Oh, I don't know that I do. (laughs) I feel like um, I'm not sure that I do. I, I don't feel that it's an exploitive impulse as much as, you know, I'm chatting with someone on a plane and what they're telling me about their business life or, you know, some story they're sharing with me, I just think, wow, that's a cool story. And I, you know, I'm, I'm honest with them and say, that's a, that's a really cool story. I'm a writer. Um, you know, would I be able to talk to you more about that or who would I call about that? But I do think that you are a writer. It's not that you are employed in the job of writer. Um, I think doing this kind of writing, frankly, I think all kinds of writing, it, it, it is an extension of how you exist in the world naturally. I think if you want to be a writer and you're not instinctively curious, if you're not the person who turns down the dark alley wondering what's down there, then maybe it's not the right profession for you. If if being interested feels like a, a professional exercise rather than a natural instinct, um, I, I don't see how that would fit. Okay. You make writers sound like the, uh, the first people killed off in the horror movies because they're the ones that go down the dark alley and say, yeah. what was that noise? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think that there's some truth to that. There's, um, I think you have to be pretty intrepid. I think you have to be um, sometimes curious in spite of the circumstances and uh, not that you have to be a risk taker, but I, I don't think you can be passive or, or um, shy away from life experiences because I just don't see how you could write and be out there as a nonfiction writer learning about the world if you're not really engaged and engage, you know, maybe a few paces ahead of the average person. You've also written My Kind of Place, travel story from a woman who's been everywhere. If there's any place left that you haven't been, where is that? Oh, there are actually, sadly, lots of places I haven't been. Oh, so the title um, is a lie, then. That <laughs> uh, it is. But, you know, you know, that's the great thing. You can just blame it on the marketing department. Okay. I didn't write the title. But, um, you know, I have traveled a lot, but there are – I have not traveled uh, extensively in Africa, and I would love to. I, I'm really, really interested in traveling – um, in India, I've, I've been there, but very briefly. And um, there is one American state I haven't been to, which is Oklahoma. And I feel that I am, I just need to have that ticked off my punch list here so that I can say I've been to every state. Um, and I'd love to go to Patagonia to 
those really extreme physical places. So I have a pretty long list. Okay. Since you are on the road so often, have you adapted your habits as a writer to work anywhere uh, that you happen to be? Or do you have specific needs and places that you need to be to write? I feel lucky because I, I have written and can write pretty much anywhere. I, I think for me, the the really um the only real requirement is that i have my my material with me and i've written in hotel rooms i've written at writers retreats on airplanes i don't need a, a hermetically sealed work environment and i feel just lucky about that i think that's purely luck of the draw i mean some people need a very particular kind of quiet or they need to be in the same place or on their particular computer. And I'm very adaptable that way, which is really lucky because I'm often in lots of different places and it would be very hard for me to get my work done if I if I really needed only to be in one very, very um, specific environment. Thank you, Susan Orlean, for talking to us today about your books, your writing, and uh, congratulations on the 2012 Ohio Anna Book Award for your book, Rin Tin Tin, The Life and the Legend. Uh, I'm really honored. This means so much to me, and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be, to be coming home to, um, to talk to folks about the book. For more great authors, visit www.writerstalk.org. Till next time, this is Doug Dangler from The Ohio State University. Keep writing.